Thank you for visiting the openword.org, where you can find a verse-by-verse exposition of almost the entire Holy Bible and other theological resources. Welcome to the next part of the series from Alan Schaefer. We'll look at 1 Thessalonians, and uh, what I'd like to do, we started last week talking about this whole notion of the rapture, day of the Lord thing. And really what we did is just introduce into a large measure some of these ideas. And um, since we've got a little bit of time, extra time in the Thessalonian letters, I'd like to spend today looking at the rapture thing just a little bit more, flushing it out, and going to Matthew 24 and working through some of the issues there and try to relate them in with 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Thessalonians 5 to somehow get a handle on what exactly is being talked about there. So that's where we're sort of headed today. So let's go ahead and open in a word of prayer and we'll get started. Father, thank you for this night of study. And as we look at this topic, I pray that uh, you teach us. We thank you for your gracious um, provision of your Holy Spirit who guides us in all truth. And I pray that we would understand, Father. We just thank you for an opportunity in Christ's name. Amen. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, we discussed last week that this is probably the greatest rapture passage in the New Testament, 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18. We find that the Lord is going to descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, and the trump of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And uh, we talked about the different rapture positions that are out there. Um, One of the predominant positions actually of the entire church throughout history is the no rapture position. They don't believe there's ever a rapture. Um, And their idea, what happens is at the end of the age, there may be a time of um, great distress, great trial and trouble, but then the Lord comes back, sets up the eternal state, and that's all there is to it. Um, This is the classical, it's called the classical post-millennial position, classical post-millennialist. And uh, most of the church was this for many, many years. In fact, if you go back 150 years in church history and you start talking about the rapture, nobody knows what you're talking about. They have no idea what you're, they have no notion of what you're saying because it was never something that they really thought of. The entire church, as far as future prophecy goes, believed that at the end of this age, which they would describe as the church age, that what would happen is Christ would come back and set up the eternal state. That was their notion. Was this just for the evangelical church or for the Catholic church? Both. Both? Both. Yeah, both. You go back and ask Charles Haddon Spurgeon, Charles, uh, what's going to happen in the future? He would be somewhat along this, this line here. The idea of, an, of a rapture, a snatching away, was really not something that the church considered. All right, they just never did it. And I think the reason is very simply is that as you go through church history, you see that the church has wrestled with various doctrines at different points in its history throughout the last 2,000 years. And it's just that the church had never really looked at this eschatological issue of what's going to happen in the future. They never really thought about it much. Um, Really what happened is back in about A.D. 400, um, Augustine, Bishop Augustine, um, came up with this classical post-millennial view. His idea was, Augustine's basic idea is, we are Israel. We have taken over Israel's promises. Israel rejected their Messiah. We are Israel. 
Therefore, we are in the kingdom even as we speak. So, for example, if you go talk to Michael Horton, if you go talk to R.C. Sproul, I'm, I'm pretty sure R.C. Sproul is of this vein, um, any of these, the Reformed theology people, they would say right now we're in the millennium. This is the millennium. Satan is bound. Even as we speak, Satan is bound. And what's going to happen at the end of this time period, Christ will come back, there'll be judgment, the eternal state begins. So we're in the millennium even as we speak. And, I mean, that's just, and, and where'd they get that? Um, if R.C. Sproul was here, I'd tell him to his face, too. I said, that's your tradition, that's all it is. It's not a, they didn't get this because they theologically, my understanding, they theologically have analyzed it. They've gotten it because of their traditions, and their traditions has sent them down a path of interpretation that leads to this, if that makes any sense. And, and we're sort of, I mean, we have the same fault. I mean, one of the greatest problems we have as students of the Scripture is to throw away our preconceptions when we come to the Word of God and try to understand it for what it is and then check our theology against it. Yeah, because we come with our presuppositions. We come bent a certain way and then everything we read is interpreted along that line, which tends to reinforce it. And I think that's what's happened with the Reformers. Um, when I listen to Michael Horton, all I hear about is, let's go back to the creeds, let's go back to the creeds, the creeds. Well, where did the creeds come from? Well, they're the classical interpretations of the church. When were those? Back in the 1500s, back in the, you know, the Nicene Creed, the Athanasian Creed, all that. He wants to go back to these creeds. And these creeds were formulated before they thought through eschatology, and ecclesiology, the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the last things. They haven't really thought through those, but they formalized all of this theology into a catechism, the Westminster Shorter Catechism and Longer Catechism. They want to go back to that, and they don't stop and analyze what it is that's saying. And, and they really, I, I like the way John MacArthur says, he says they haven't taken the Reformation far enough. They got soteriology right, the doctrine of salvation by faith alone, Christ alone. Um, they understand theology proper pretty well. They understand who God is. They understand who man is, but then they stopped there and they didn't finish going through the doctrine of the church, the doctrine of the future things. And there's a lot, for instance, where does ba uh, infant baptism come from? Why does R.C. Sproul, and I listened to, I have a de him debating on a tape, defending infant baptism, where did it come from? It's his tradition, that's all it is. It's tradition, yeah. And I had, I heard this this guy, you know, he forgot more about theology than most people know. I heard him stand up and say that the reason the New Testament doesn't tell us to baptize babies is because everybody did it and it was just assumed that that's what you did. And I'm sitting there thinking. Yeah, it doesn't speak of baptism of infants. But, the, but when he's asked about that, well, why doesn't the New Testament say anything about baptizing babies? So, oh, well, they did that. That's just something the church did. So, of course, there's not written in the New Testament. There's no need for it because that's just the practice of the church. Where does he get that? Tradition. That's his traditions. That's all it is. All right? But what happens is you get stuck in a traditional view. And... Uh, Probably one of the most debated passages when it comes to this whole notion of rapture and the second coming and things like that is Matthew 24. 
and I'd like to just go through this a little bit because it, it just, I think what it does, it really fleshes out this whole notion of what's going to happen in the future. And the thing that I'm amazed at, I listen to several people, these get some markers at work, I listen to several people work through this particular passage, and uh, all of them said different things. All of them said different things. They all came up with a different way to approach this passage. And when I started looking at it, all of them um, neglected to look at the context of what Christ was saying. If you go back to Matthew 24, you've got to get the context. In verse 1, it says, Jesus went out and departed from the temple, and his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. Now, the temple at this point was a very massive thing. It was... It was it was called Herod's Temple. It was one of the wonders almost of that world. I mean, it was just a massive thing. Um, Herod spent 46 years building the thing. In the time of Christ, he was building this thing for 46 years. And it wouldn't be completed for quite a few other years. But this was this massive temple, and they were showing him this. And Christ said, I want to tell you that um, the time is coming in which one stone will not be left on another until it's all tore down. In other words, I'm going to tear, whatever happens here, this whole thing is going to come tore down so that these stones, and if you go there today and look at the western wall, you've got you know, massive stones that are tons apiece. And he said they're all going to be tore down. And uh, as he said on the Mount of Olives, verse 3, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age. So the questions they're going to ask Christ is right here. Now you've got to understand the, the messianic fervor of the Jewish people at that time was at an all-time high. They were expecting their Messiah to come and throw Rome out of their land, restore the theocracy, restore the kingdom, and rule. That's what they were looking for, a physical manifestation of the kingdom. This idea of a spiritual kingdom and dying on a cross, that was totally foreign them. They did not understand that. They did not even think about that. And one of the things, if you go back in rabbinical literature, one of the things that the rabbis taught was that when the Messiah would come, the true Messiah, he would destroy the current temple and rebuild a new one. And so when Christ said all these stones are going to be torn down, what do you, as a disciple, what are you going to think? He's here. I mean, right? I mean, they thought he was the Messiah. He, it's here. So when are you going to do this? What's going to be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, in a Jewish context, what is the end of the age? The end of the age. Yeah, but there's, to the Jew, there was this age and the age to come. So what was the age to come? the Jew. The kingdom. The kingdom. That's the age to come. Yeah, the, the, to the, the physical manifestation of the kingdom of God that's promised in the Old Testament. That was the age to come. Based on what you said that um, in Hebrew history the rabbis would teach about the fact that when the Messiah would come, he would rebuild the temple. Mm -hmm. Did they back up anywhere in the Old Testament? No, that was just from their, their understanding, their traditions, things like that. They probably did. I've not studied that out. 
Um, you know, you can go through some of the old rabbinical writings, which are boring stuff about that thick. But um, they did have this expectation that the Messiah would institute new laws, would institute new worship. I mean, would totally turn everything upside down and start fresh. Yeah, and they thought that's what this Messiah would do. So when Christ told the disciples that, going through their mind, they're thinking, wow, you know, this is great. It's going to be here right now. Wow, wonderful. So they ask him, when is it going to happen? Now, and see, here, here's, here's the problem that I, that I have. Um, I listened to three guys preach through this passage this week, and they all say this is referring to the church. It's talking to us. All right? Now, if it's talking to us, what, what, and you just read this passage, when do we get raptured? Before, during, or after the tribulation? Certainly not before. It could be after or during. If this is talking to Christians, to believers, to, to people in the church, to us, then we've got to wind up a post-tribulationist or, at best, a pre-wrath rapturist. The, 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 the possibility of a pre-tribulational viewpoint is not here. When you see the abomination of desolation, flee into the mountains. You mean based on the whole chapter? Based on the whole chapter. If it is talking to a Christian, then, at best, we could be raptured partway through the tribulation, at worst, at the end. But we cannot be raptured prior to it. Oh yeah, you just read through it. It says, when you see the abomination of desolation, flee in the mountains, for then shall be great persecution and great tribulation, such as it was not since the beginning of the world of this time, nor ever shall be. And when you see the sun and the moon darken, and you see all this, and if you, if you compare Matthew 24 with the first five seals in Revelation, there's a direct parallel. So what if you're not looking at, at the church? What if you're not speaking to the church? That's the question. That is the hermeneutical principle that will that will drive how you interpret this. Is Christ talking to the church? Now listen to a guy say, absolutely he is. And he said, this is the reason Christ is talking to the church, because in Matthew 28, Christ says, all authority I've given you, go and preach the gospel to every nation. Who's he talking to? Disciples, but by extension, the church. Therefore, if he's talking to the church there, he's got to be talking to the church here. Is that true? Not necessarily. Not at all necessarily. You got to add, when you come to a passage of scripture, the first question to ask yourself is, who is the audience? Who is it talking to? And just because in a book of the Bible it is talking to the church in one chapter does not mean that every chapter in that book is talking to the church. Necessarily. It could be, but not necessarily. You got to look at the text to see if that's what it's talking about. Here's a question. Did the church exist at this point? No, it didn't. Um, did the disciples understand the concept of a church? No, they did not. What were they looking for? The kingdom. And how do you know that? Well, in Acts chapter 1, when, just before Christ goes up into heaven, what are they asking? Going to restore the kingdom now? I mean, they weren't looking at no church age. That, that was over the head. There's no way they were looking at a church age. Now, I listened to this guy on these set of tapes saying, look, 
The disciples understood at this point that Christ was going to go away for a long time, so they're asking when he's coming back. And I want to say, have you read Acts 1? Are you going to restore the kingdom now? They, they, no comprende. No, it did not understand this. Another pr good proof of that, look at Luke chapter 24. you got Cleopas. Remember Cleopas, the guy on the road to Emmaus? What was his problem? He was depressed out of his mind. Why? He thought this was the Messiah and he's dead. Everything was dashed to pieces. This, isn't, this is not talking to the church. Okay? It's talking to, Christ is talking to the disciples in a Jewish context. And the question is asking is, when is the sign of the coming and the end of the age, the end of the age to what? To the Jew. When is the Jewish end of the age and the beginning of the millennium going to be? And he's going to answer that question. All right? Now, and, and how do I... Let's just go through this. Jesus answered and said unto them, Take heed that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many, and you'll hear wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines, pestilence, and earthquakes in various places, and all of these are the beginning of sorrows. All right, so you got, what you have here is false Christ, deception, false religions. Now we see a little bit of that today, but not like it is going to be in the tribulation. And if you go through that, in fact, if you look at the first five seals and you look at this, they, they match pretty well. They match up. For they shall deliver you up to tribulation, kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended, will betray one another, will hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, and because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now what I heard somebody say is, well, that's talking about if you endure through this persecution to the end of it, you'll get raptured in the, before when Christ comes back. All right. Well, you've got to understand, what does it mean by saved? Does that mean saved by the rapture? Does it mean saved is your physical life or your spiritual life? You've got to work through that. I think all it is here is the ones who endure through this will be physically left alive. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached. Oh. In verse 10, at the time many will turn away from the faith. Are you talking about the Jewish faith? I think he's talking about Jewish faith. I think he's talking about God. I mean, if you look at the tribulation, it's going to be a time of great apostasy, right? I mean, if you, if you, don't, if you don't follow the Antichrist, you're killed. True. So what are you equating? Are you equating these verses to Revelation as a future event? Yes. In your mind? Yes, I think these are future. Okay. Now, 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 as you know, the yeah. position will take that, that that is talking about that specific time. Exactly. Prior to 87 and the structure of the temple. And right. Or all those things were occurring during that. Yeah, and, and, and the answer to that is yes and no. Yes, we've always had this. I mean, we've always had these things happening. But during the tribulation, there's a special time when these things are intensified significantly. I mean, you look at one of the seal, or no, one of the bowls that says the whole earth is shaken. I mean, the whole earth, not just California, the whole thing is shaken. The mountains are flattened, the islands disappear. And I think, I'm not sure about this, but I thought I read the preface would take the position that Revelation was written back in the 60s and the 70s. Yeah, and, and, they, do, the and they do a tremendous amount 
of uh, backflips and handsprings to pull that off. They've got to do that. They've got to force an early date on it. But uh, even Eusebius in Ecclesiastical History says it was written by John during the reign of Nerva, which is A.D. 95-96. Who said that? What was that? Um, the, it's in Eusebius' Ecclesiastical History. He was an historian from the 2nd century. All right. And he says it was written during A.D. 95-96, somewhere around in that time frame. All right. Um, they've got to do a lot of backflips and handsprings to push the date back. All right. But they, they will do that. And there's a guy, um, Robert Gundry, I think is his. In fact, his book is on the web. Gundry is his name. And uh, he, he's written an entire book that tries to force the revelation back to A.D. 60, prior to, um, you know, prior to uh, the, the fall of um, Jerusalem. All right. But although it did happen a little bit in Jerusalem, the things here are, are, are far beyond just what happened then. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, kingdom against kingdom. Be, I mean, when you look at the time, of, uh, the time of the Jewish wars, where was the war? Basically, just in Judea. I mean, the rest of the empire was pretty quiet. I mean, you didn't have the, the global wars that are there talked of here. I mean, it, it was pretty quiet. Yeah. Just to make sure, you, you believe that the church will be wrecked. Absolutely. Then my biggest question, and because I've been asked, how in the world are people going to be saved during that time? How are people saved at any time? Well, I thought the Holy Spirit can leave the earth. No, see that? Yeah. And see, that's one of the things that the pre-wrath when people come around and say, you guys think the, the Holy Spirit's gone. No, the Holy Spirit is not gone. The Holy Spirit, I mean... If you take every Christian out of the world, does the Holy Spirit disappear? No. No, he doesn't. I think what you see, in my best understanding, is that the work of the Holy Spirit is different. The way in which he ministers during this time is different. Whereas with the church, we have the indwelling believer. I think this goes back to more of an Old Testament economy where you didn't necessarily have the Spirit's indwelling, but you certainly had the Spirit's presence. Yeah, a great multitude will be saved. The Holy Spirit will be very active. He won't be gone during this time. A theory that I've heard is growing up is that the Spirit will be geared more towards the Jews. God will be working through the Jewish people as his people during that time. Because many will come to Christ then. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, same Christ. And they will believe the gospel. All right. Um, it says here, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all nations, and then the end will come. What's the gospel of the kingdom? What's the gospel of the kingdom? It's not this. It's not the gospel as we you know. That's this is one of those words that trap you. When I say gospel, what do you think of? Well, the four spiritual laws. You know, Jesus died, buried, rose again, believe, da-da-da-da-da. Um, that's, that's the gospel. Well, that's good news, definitely. But the gospel of the kingdom is different. When Christ first began his ministry, what did he preach? The gospel of the kingdom. What did John preach? Gospel of the kingdom. What's the gospel of the kingdom? Good news, the king is here. The kingdom was being offered. And, of course, they rejected it because they... They didn't want to repent or anything like that. They wanted the physical manifestation. This gospel here is the good news that Christ 
righteous rule is about to begin. It's not the four spiritual laws. The kingdom is here. The good news. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, who sees that? Where we have to be to see that? You have to be on earth in Jerusalem, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing in the holy place, whoever reads let him understand, then those, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. The abomination of desolation here refers back to the prophecy in Daniel where, where it talks about the Antichrist is going to make a covenant with Israel for one week, seven years, and in the middle of that time period he's going to break the covenant and set himself up as God. He's going to break it and go after Israel. And he's going to desecrate the temple from Second Thessalonians, which we're going to get to. It says that the Antichrist is going to sit in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. He's going to set himself up to be worshipped. And this happens partway through, the abomination, which makes desolate. And it says here, if you see that, run into the mountains. Now, where do you have to be to run into the mountains? Well, in Judea. I mean, that, this is the context. This is Where's the focus? Judea, Israel. And if you're in the field, don't go back to get your clothes. And woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies, and pray that your flight be not in the winter or on the Sabbath. Why would the Sabbath be a bother? Unless you're in Israel. We don't care. What's going to happen? I, I especially have a question about America. Where's America? There's nowhere in the scriptures. We're going to be there. We're going to be one of the nations. We're going to be there. But the Bible doesn't say it because the Bible, when it talks about prophecy, the focus is on Israel. It's like watching the Super Bowl. You know, the focus is on the football, what's happening with the football. You don't watch the stands and everything else and the sidelines. It's where the action is at. And that's where it is in Scripture. The prophetic action is on Israel. We're definitely going to be there as a nation. It's going to be there. Um, what role is, Israel, is America going to play? Don't know. Don't know. We're not told. It just doesn't say. I think it's talking in the Jewish context. Yeah. Because the Jews will be hated by all nations because of. I mean, what's going to happen to Israel during the tribulation? What's going to? You're going to have a lot of repent. You're going to have a lot of Jews that say, you know, we we really screwed up. We missed the Messiah the first time. And how many, how many Jews will be converted, according to Zechariah? Well, at least that number. But how many, according to Zechariah 14? One-third. He says, I'll bring one-third through the fire, as we're finding through the fire. Zechariah 13, 8, or something like that. A third of Israel. At that present time. Yeah, that's a lot of, that's a lot of Jews. And if you look at, at Revelation... Chapter 12, remember when, when, when um, Satan is thrown out of heaven, what does he do? He goes to make war with the woman. Who's the woman? Well, that's Israel. The woman is Israel, which gave birth to the Messiah. He goes to make war with the woman, and not only that, he also makes war with the remnant of her seed who believe the testimony of Jesus. Who are those? Christians. Christians. People who are born again. Gentiles that are there at that time. So how would there be Christians if they didn't already go there? Because they will be saved after. Absolutely. No, God will send a strong delusion on them who believe the lie. That doesn't mean that everybody will 
That doesn't mean that God will not save anyone. It means there will be a strong delusion. I mean, the Satan is going to be very deceitful and very crafty, and there's going to be a lot of deception. But that doesn't mean that every single person that's ever lived is going to be hardened and not believe. I'm not fighting against. They're going to be basically being killed by the Antichrist. Not going to be a good time to be a Christian um, at that time. Um, but there's going to be an innumerable company. We know that because it says in um, Revelation chapter five that he saw the souls who had been martyred under the altar an innumerable company. And then in chapter seven, you see an innumerable company before the throne. And and John and the angel asked John, "Well, who are these guys?" He said, well, you know who they are. And he said, well, these are they who are coming out of great tribulation. And the word used there is a progressive tense verb, which means they are coming out. It's not they came out, they are coming out of tribulation. They're arriving. Even as he speaks, you got more showing up. These are the redeemed people. And it says they're from every nation, tribe, kindred, tongue, people, language, whatever. I mean, it's representative. So there's going to be a great, um, a great revival during that time. And, but Antichrist is, you know, for then there'll be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world of this time, nor ever shall be, unless those days would be shortened. No flesh would be saved, but for the elect's sake, those days would be shortened. All right? And if anyone says to you, look, here's the Christ, or there, do not believe it. Why would somebody say, here's the Christ? Yeah, and you try to get these hiding Christians out of, into the public or these hiding Israelites to get them out there to, to capture them. Christ shows up. He's down here and have people show up and they get nabbed or whatever. Christ is saying, don't let them, don't let them um, deceive you because when Christ shows up, verse 27, it's going to be like lightning. I mean, it's going to be so visible that everybody can see it. It's not going to be any secret thing out in the middle of the desert somewhere. Rather, it's going to be a universally seen event as lightning. And then it says here, um, verse 29, immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. The stars will fall from heaven. The powers of the heavens shall be shaken. If you go over and compare that to Revelation, that's the sixth seal. All right, the, the, the wonders in heaven. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they shall see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. The Shekinah glory of God will appear and will be there. And he will send his angels with a great sound of a trumpet. They will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. Now again, people say, well, see, there's the rapture. He's gathering the elect. All right. Think out and understand, what is the elect? All right. Well, it's any, any, it's any one of God's people. You've got the elect, all right, and of the elect, you have some that are in the church, some are Israel. But just because you're elect doesn't mean you're in the church. You can't make that equation. Christ, Christ has just said that he's coming back, and then he wants to illustrate this by saying, you've got to be ready because you don't know when I'll show up. And how does he do that? Well, he has six illustrations here. One, the first one is the fig tree. When you see the budding of the fig tree, you know that summer is near even at the door. I tell you that this generation shall not pass till all these things be fulfilled. What generation? The one that saw the fig tree bud. What's the fig tree budding? It's not the reestablishment of Israel. I don't believe that. You don't believe 
No, not at all. What I believe it is, is the people who see these signs start to come to pass. If you see these signs come to pass, summer is right around the corner, and that generation that sees them begin will see them end. I've, I've heard lots of preachers too. A lot of preachers. Number two. I heard, you know, people that in the 18th century, some of their writing and stuff, you know, and they were looking at this the passage of scripture, and they were saying, well, this is it. You know, today is happening. I mean, mm -hmm. the same thing that I hear lots of preachers saying today. All, all these things that are, that they are talking about in Matthew 24, they're happening today. Do you believe that we live in a time that the victory is starting to break down? Um, I think the idea of the fig tree budding here is the people who see the signs that he's just talked about come to pass. Now, do we see some of these things happening now? Yeah. Well, to a certain degree, yeah. They've been happening all throughout They've been happening all throughout, but there's an intensification now. I mean, you see an intensification of all of these things. Well, if you take that path, then you're not being very specific for them in the fig tree. Absolutely. It could be any time. The point is, and that's, that's the point he's trying to make, but when you do see all of these things come to pass, well, what's that? Well, the abomination of desolation. We've not seen that one yet. Yeah, there's some specific things. And the darkening of the sun, the moon, the stars, and all that. I agree. This is talking to Israel. And when you see that budding, it's around the corner, man. It's, it's there. Be ready. Because the Lord is going to come back when you don't think about it. And then he uses the... the, the the illustration of the days of Noah. For as the days of Noah, so also shall the coming of the Son of Man be. For in the days before the flood, they were eating, drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, till the day that Noah entered the ark, the flood came and took them all away. Now I read people say, well, what that means is that um, God raptures the Christians. They're taken away and the others are left for judgment. Well, the problem with that is if you, if you tool over to Luke chapter 14, the Pharisees ask Christ, when are you gonna, when's the kingdom coming? And Christ uses the same illustration. And in using that same illustration, he says, for in the days of Noah, they were eating and drinking and giving in marriage until the day Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Who got destroyed? The sinners. The sinners. Who gets taken away here? The sinners. Who gets left? The righteous. What do they get to do? They get to enter the kingdom. They're the ones that get left. They're the ones that, and, and the word for taken away here, you know, you all kinds of backflips and handsprings and Greek and all that other stuff to try and make it mean, well, it means to be taken away, to be led away in, in, um, by Christ, the church being led away by Christ. I don't, I don't buy that at all. I so think where it's. Do you see this taking place? When? After the rapture. After the rapture. This, is, this, is, this here is end of tribulation, right here. End of tribulation. Yeah, this, this here is right here at the end of the tribulation. When Christ comes back. This is the start of the millennium right here. He, Christ comes and he gathers the other ones and takes them all away. Yeah. So the millennium, if, if that's what entering, who is actually going to be part of the millennium? Is it going to be the ones that are going to be left? The ones that are left, the, the ones that are left, the Jews that are redeemed, they're left, and there's a third of those, Zechariah 13. They are left on earth. They get to enter the millennium in their physical bodies. Um, and also there's going to be a great number of Gentiles who really believe. And that's Matthew 25 where God judges the nations. All the nations are going to be gathered and he's going to judge them. And how is he going to judge them? Well, how did you treat Israel? Because how you treat Israel is indicative of what you are. 
that was starting with verse 31, that's what it talks about? In where? In Matthew 25? Yeah. Boy, I never heard of that. He's going to gather all the nations before him. I thought, I thought that that had to do with, you know, Christians taking care of their brethren. Or no, it has nothing to do with that. Really? Context. Context is the whole key. Yeah, we're going a little too fast. Gotta get the context down. We'll get there. All right. It all fits. It all fits together. That, yeah, that's called concordance theology, where you get your concordance, you start diving into the passages of Scripture to come up with a theology, and you ignore the passage and what it means and where it came from and why it's there. Christ is giving an illustration, and I think it hangs together really well, because then he says uh, the flood came and took them all away. Um, and then he uses another illustration, verse 43, if the master had known when his house was being broken into, he would have been ready. So here's another illustration. It's how, how's that day going to take people? There are going to be some people, they're just going to be doing their normal everyday activities, and bang, judgment comes, and it takes them all away. They're not going to be expecting it. Some people are going to say, well, you know, it may happen, but not to me. Well, they get robbed. You know, the, the robber doesn't say when he's going to be at your house. He just shows up and when you don't expect it. So you've got to be ready at all times. So the same with us being, same with us who are awaiting the rapture and ready at all times. But I, I agree. Third coming, yes. It kind of makes the same principle. You've got to be ready. But hold on a second. You don't know the day or the hour. Well, after the rapture, didn't they say that after the rapture, well, that's the question. Is it exactly seven? Because he just says, unless those days are shortened, no one would be saved. No flesh would be saved. Unless the days were shortened, there would be no flesh left alive. Yeah, it says that right back in uh, verse uh, 22. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. Well, what's it say? 22. It could be seven years, it could be six years, 11 months, and four days. It, there's, still, there's still an ambiguity at the end. It does say not more than a generation. Yeah, not more than a generation. Yeah. Well, look at, for example, you look at the um, 70 years captivity. Remember back in, it says 70 years, you'd be in Babylon for 70 years? Well, it was actually 68 years and some odd months that they were in captivity. But it was around 70. Now, that doesn't mean that God can't be specific, but sometimes he is very specific. Other times, how many men got fed? 5,000? Or 4,996? Uh, about 5,000. That's what, you know, about 5,000. You know. Yeah. Um, Yeah, 70 weeks. Yeah. I mean, that would, would that apply to it there? Is that what he's talking about? This 70th... In chapter, in, in uh, verse 22, by cutting it short? I think he, it may be talking about cutting the 70th week short. Yeah, some aspect. Yes, I think, that, I think that's very possible. Okay. I mean, you, go, you look at the tribulation, it's sort of nasty. I mean, right at the end, when the vials are pulled out, poured out, all the water, fresh water is gone. All the green grass is burned up. All the trees are gone. How long, does, how, do you, how long are you going to survive on that? Not very long. So, so he says it'll come when nobody expects it. How could life on earth be going along and 
people doing what they usually do with all Because the men are very resourceful. So will I will return during the tribulation? Will there be order? Yeah, there'll be order. If you're an unbeliever, it'll be a pretty good time until God starts pouring out his judgments. Yeah, but even in that... And even when God's pouring out his judgments, there are certain places the earth are going to be hit a lot harder and a lot worse than we are. You know, it doesn't mean that everybody in the entire earth is going to be suffering the same level of God's wrath. It's not going to be a good time to be alive. But there are going to be people at that time that, that just, when Christ comes back, the last thing they do is expect God to show up. That's the last thing they expect. They're not going to be expecting it. And he says it's like the days of Noah. It's like, uh, it's like somebody breaking in your house. It's like uh, a, a servant that beat his fellow servants. He says, my Lord delays his coming. Um, that, no, that's not here. No, wait a minute. Where is it? Is it? I'm looking at the wrong. Let's see. Uh, yeah, an evil servant, verse 45. An evil servant that, my Lord delays his coming. I know he's coming back, but he's taking, and he takes advantage of people during the time. And when God comes back, what's going to happen to that evil servant? He's going to be cut in pieces. And it's going to cut, point him, his portion with hypocrite, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Where's there's weeping and gnashing of teeth in Matthew? Hell. All right. So, so, so when Christ comes back at this time, if you're not ready, where do you go? Hell. So it's got to be different than the rapture. All right. And then he gives a parable of the ten virgins. Now I've heard many sermons on this, how, you know, you've got to be one of the virgins. It's the church, you know, and you've got some people in the church that are ready, blah, 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 blah. Um, this is tribulational context. And what, it's, what I think the parable of the ten virgins is doing very clearly is it's saying there are going to be some people alive at the end of the tribulation that are going to know that Christ is going to come back. They're going to be waiting for him to come back, but some aren't going to be ready. Spiritually, they're not going to be ready. They will not be saved. Because they may be waiting for the physical manifestation of the kingdom without repenting. The same problem that Christ faced back then. They wanted the kingdom, but nobody wanted to repent. There's some people that want the kingdom, but they're not willing to repent of their sin. They're not willing to turn from their sin. Not all say, Lord, Lord, get to heaven. All right. And, and by the way, you know, I, don't think we're, I think the picture is very clear. We're not, a, we're not a virgin. We're the bride. We're the bride of Christ. The church is the bride. And what this is, is, I think the picture is very clear here. This is a picture of Christ returning to the earth for the millennium with his bride, Revelation 19. And there's going to be some people that are ready and some that are not ready. Those that are ready get to enter the marriage feast, which is the millennium. Those that are not are cast out. They don't get in. And when I say, let us in, he says, I don't know who you guys are. I have no idea who you are. Well, yeah, the party's already begun. It's an illustration, too. You can't, don't take the illustration too far, I think. But yeah, the... the, the Meaning the party has begun when the rapture takes place. In a sense, the party has. In a, in a sense, it has, to some degree. And these people are just coming late. The, the, um, the, the five that get in? Yeah. No, the way it worked in those days is that um, 
when, when, when you were betrothed to a woman for marriage, the time would come when you'd go back and you'd build a house for her on your father's house. You'd add a room or whatever. And then when, the, when you got it all ready, the father said, okay, go get your bride. And then you would go get your bride. And it would be maybe a year it would take you to build this, this addition. You would go get your bride. And then you'd make this grand pr procession through the city, the streets, and all the joy and all that stuff. Come back to your father's house, and you'd have the wedding party there, which was seven days up to that time. Up to seven days of, of a party. All right. Um, and, and, and when you went to get your bride, she would sort of know, and it's really interesting as you look at the, the rich imagery behind it, she would sort of know that it could happen. And if you were waiting for your husband, you were, you were supposed to have your shoes by your bed, you know, all ready, so when he showed, because he could show up at any time. You didn't know when he was going to show up. That was part of the mystique, the surprise. You never knew when he could show up. And when he did, you and your friends would go to the wedding party, the, the feast. And the picture here is that when the bridegroom comes, some people aren't ready for him. They're gone. They're out trying to find the oil. And when the party comes and, you know, they all go into the father's house, then you have all these people that want to bust the party come up. Hey, let us in. Well, you weren't part of the procession. You're not in. I don't know who you are. They're cast out. And then you've got the parable of the talents. What's the parable of the talents? Tribulational context. I don't think it has anything to do with me. Now, if you want to find out what it has to do with me, go back to Luke chapter, I think it's 16, the parable of the ten pounds, the parable of the minas. A master called his servants in, gave each of them a pound, said go do something with it, invest it. And when he came back, he wanted to see how well they did. That's us. Because the reward there in Luke is that you get to rule and reign with the king, right? He goes to get a kingdom. Where's Christ? He's going to get a kingdom. When he comes back, what is he going to do? We're going to stand before him and give an account of how well we have ministered, how well we have been faithful to what he's told us to do. And what is our reward? We get to rule during the millennium. Luke 16. I think it's Luke 16 or 19. I always get them backwards. Um, we get to rule with him during that time. And in that passage, there's one servant that didn't do anything. What happens to him? No, not in Luke. They take his money away and give it to the guy who has ten. And he says, you wicked and evil servant. You should have at least put it in the bank and gotten interest on it. But, that, yeah, but nothing happens to him other than he doesn't get to rule. He barely made it in. He's, he's, not part of, he's not outside the kingdom. He's in the kingdom, but there's no reward for him. Yeah, there's no reward for him. Yeah. Um, but here in, in Matthew, you have a different scenario. You have people with talents, and, uh, some guy, and both of them, by the way, one has, uh, I forget what it is, Five and he gets five more. Another gets two, he's get two more. One guy, he's hidden his, he's buried it in the ground. Now what happens to the third guy in Matthew? What happens to him? He gets cast into outer darkness. I think this is a picture of those who have opportunity for whatever, service, for belief, whatever. If you don't act on what opportunity you have, you may miss everything. 
And, and by the way, there's no reward here for rulership, right? It just says, enter into the joy of your Lord. There's no, nothing given here saying, here, come have ten cities, five cities, whatever. It's enter into the joy of your Lord. What's that? The millennium. So you're saying Luke has to do with, uh, they're two different stories. Two, exa two different stories. Completely different stories. But here it says, his master replied, well done, been faithful servant. You have been faithful with few things. I will put you in charge of many things. In where? Matthew? Yeah, 25. Let's um, go. 25. 23. Yeah, 23. I make you rule over many things, enter in the joy of your Lord. There is a reward there. I, I'll take that back. There is a reward, but it's not specified what that is, whereas in Luke, there is. You may, I'll make you rule over 10 cities, I'll make you rule over 5 cities. Part of the. Part of the um, reward that we have as believers is ruling and reigning with Christ during the millennium. I think that's part of it. So what did the third guy do? What did he do? He did not take advantage of that which he, opportunities which he may have had. And, and it's unspecified. I mean, Christ does not come out and say exactly what those opportunities were, but I think we can infer that he may have known about Christ, he may have had an idea about the Messiah, but he just never did anything with it. He never, it never got into action. And he ignored doing anything about it. But the only thing any of those three guys could have done, the minimum that they could have done, is still answer just belief. Yes. And I think the fact that the, the, the third guy didn't do anything he means he, did never, he didn't even believe. Well, both of them had a, a, five, a one, what, a 200-fold increase? Both doubled it. The guy that had five got five more. The guy that had two got two more. Um, I think it's just that some people have more opportunity than others. They have more ability. They may have more, just more opportunity. And I think the point Christ is making is whatever opportunity you have, make the best of it. Yeah, I don't think the amount here is important as much as take advantage of what opportunity you have. He didn't do anything. And, and look, you guys know, you know people in your church, you know people in your church, yeah, you know, I, I know that God, you know, he saves me, he can save me, and I, I know that, but, you know, I got time, I'll just, you know, wait and put it off, and you put it off, and you put it off. And although there's an intellectual knowledge, yeah, yeah, it could happen, they just never do it. They never do anything. And I think that's what is in view here. Right. What did that, what did that town stand for, that one number? That, that sounds like a good paper topic. <laughs> really, it's not specified. It's, it's not specified. I understand this to refer to opportunity. What opportunity? There are some people during the tribulation, there are some people alive, they're going to have great opportunity. Some are not going to have as good an opportunity. And, and that's all by the sovereign planning and purpose of God, that what opportunity you have. But what God requires is whichever you get, do something with it. Don't just sit. It's been clear to me as well, and it doesn't specify, but the most, uh, the hardest thing I have to hit myself with is it clearly applies to witnessing as a self-multiplying yeah. set of gifts. If you believe in the crown of life coming to those who win souls. And the idea that, hey, how can I have any 
just working along doesn't necessarily mean guarantee reward. Yeah. That should be our minimum yeah. that we're working. The, but the idea of the folks that naturally are multiplying their opportunities are those who are witnessing, those who are sharing. Maybe it's discipleship and building saints who witness. One gets one builds one. In the case of discipleship, one may be building many, and that's what Paul was all about. Yeah. So that's the one thing you can be sure of is applies to. And God, and God expects you to be faithful with whatever he gives you. Right. Do your best. Whatever that is. But yeah. And I think part of it... Yeah. Yeah, and I think I think what Christ is trying to get there is there's going to be significantly severe judgment if you don't do anything. You know, I mean, to me, the devastating thing—it's—it's it's sort of like uh, Peter says: it's better for you not to have ever known the way of righteousness, and after you know it, to turn your back on it. I mean, it'd be better to be a pagan in Bula Bula than a rich American in the United States and having listened to the Bible all your life and rejected it. It'd be better off to be a native in Bula Bula because of the severe judgment that you will receive because you had opportunity, you did nothing with it. And that, that's, I think, what Christ's trying to get here. You know, take advantage of opportunities. And even during that time, there's going to be opportunities. You know, funny, I, I don't have to show me where it talks about degrees of punishment. It talks about degrees of reward. Oh, I think it's easy. But I think it's easy. It's easy. It's easy to prove that. Absolutely. Why in the world would God pull the books out if everybody gets the same punishment? What good is there to have a record of the books? What good is there for him to judge you according to the deeds you've done if there's no difference? I mean, I... There are different degrees. Uh, there's a different degree of, of, of oh, yeah. I don't know, realization, punishment. I, don't, I you know, we're not really given a, a, a pathological description of that. Right. I don't pathologize is not the word he's a, a description. But when I say, why in the world would God pull the books out and judge you according to your deeds if the deeds have nothing to do with your eternal destiny, not in terms of destiny, but de but your state in that eternal destiny? Why pull the books out? And the other question here is, why, ever, why even have a judgment? If you go to the pit, you go to the pit. Why judge? He's only the lost. Well, he's judging us, but why judge the lost? If everybody gets the same degree of punishment, just throw them all in the lake of fire and be done with but it. that is an act of judgment. So again, you come back to interpretation. That in itself... Yeah, I think the inference... Yeah. I think the infer, I think in, what I do is I, is I look at I infer that there's a degree because the books are open, the dead are judged according to their deeds. Their eternal destiny, like you said, is a done deal. Where they're going is done, but there's a degree of punishment. And for God to be ultimately fair, he's going to punish Hitler a lot worse off than he's going to punish someone else. And here's the other thing, in order to be fair... Hitler will not only get punished for what he did in life, but for the evil influence that existed beyond his death. That was due to his existence. 
Yeah, so I, that's why he judges at the end of everything. Not at the end of history. Because your influence lives on. And at the same time, if you flip that coin backwards, you know, the good deeds that we did in the flesh, I think they're going to be scattered. Yeah, God's going to, you know, God's going to take that into account. And I, I think it's going to be, I mean, I don't think it's going to have an When Paul, yeah, when Paul receives rewards, he's not going to only receive rewards for what he did in life, but look at the influence that he had that lived on after his death. Look at all of the, look at what happened because of his life. So for good or bad, your influence lives on. And if God's going to be fair, all of it's taken into consideration. It's all taken into consideration. You go to a, you go to a, I don't know, a holding cell, if you want to call it, which is hell, which is not a nice place to be. All right. Hades is not a nice place to be. The, the, rich young, the rich ruler said, or the rich man said, you know, I'm tormented in this flame. Now, is it physical fire like we know it? I don't know, but whatever he experienced, it was like being burned alive. It was not a good, it was not a pleasant thing. You can't come back, you can't get out. And, and you know, whatever it was, it was bad. No, I don't know where purgatory came from. No, as a Christian, you go to heaven. As a Christian, when you die, you go to the presence of the Lord. As an unbeliever, you go to, to Hades. The technical term is Hades. It's a place of confinement. Um, it's a place of torment, but it's not the eternal state. The eternal state is the lake of fire, which is different. Yeah, that's worse. Well, to God, what's worse, hating someone or killing them? To God, what's worse? It's the same. Because there are different, because um, what I do has a different effect on society, right? Right. No, that's fine. I've never thought about this as well. That's fine. Yes. I just never understood. Mm -hmm. and, and where I get that, I, I think, is, is the whole inference I draw from that. You're right. I mean, you could take that one or two ways. But the whole inference is why would God have a judgment if everybody got the same degree? Why would there even be a time of the great white throne? Just put them all in the lake of fire and be done with it. Why pull the books out and why judge them according to their deeds? And why would he say, here's another example, why would Christ say it'd be more tolerable for Sodom and Gomorrah in the day of judgment than for Chorazin and Bethsaida and Capernaum? I mean, hinted in that is Sodom was bad, but you're worse because you had God show up and you, you, you threw God away. So you're worse. So, so it's going to be better for them than for you. And then he says, what is it? The queen of Sheba will rise up and judge you. Because she heard of Solomon and came a thousand miles across the desert to hear him, and you guys won't go down the street to hear the Messiah. So you you see there there's a hint. Does it come out and say, okay, he, you know, here's here's the penalty levels, here's the degrees? It doesn't do that, but it certainly hints that there are some degrees. You know exactly how that works. We're not told. 
I never did get to the day of the Lord, which I wanted to do. But, I, but the, yeah, the, the point, and again, this is not a matter of essential orthodoxy. We're not going to call anybody heretics over this kind of stuff, although you see it on the web. If you've been out on the web, what is it, once said the heresy of uh, dispensation? You find that site yet? We're talking about dispensationalists as heretics. I've got some that the dispies are heretics. I've got some that say that the preterists are heretics. I mean, you just name it. And they're, you know, this is not essential theology. It's difficult stuff to think through. Um, it's not easy. Like you said, you, there's some good arguments for the preterist position. And although I do see it here, um, hinted at, I don't see the full fulfillment of this at that time. You've still got the revelation, still got the future fulfillment, which I think is coming. But um, we'll pick up on the day of the Lord next week and move on. Father, thanks for this time of study, and we just scratched the surface, and although we've been here an hour, it feels like only five minutes. And uh, I just thank you for this opportunity of study. Help us as we think through these issues. Um, we do our best to understand them, and just thank you for your spirit that guides us in all truth. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you for listening. This podcast was made in part with creative consulting and production assistance by Third Mass Studio. For your production needs, send an email to thirdmassstudio at gmail.com. For other lectures in this series and more biblical media resources, visit theopenword.org.